Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings. And 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, we hear the incredible story of Reaction, a mod-influenced band from Burton-on-Trent formed in November 1980 by Bruno Gallone. And it was a real delight to hear Bruno's incredible story from creating the band before he could even play an instrument to their first gig a few weeks later. What comes next sounds too good to be true, but yes, it actually happened. On this podcast chat, we dig into the quite frankly, ridiculously brilliant story of how just a year later, the band got to support their heroes, The Jam, at the Hammersmith Palais in London. We'll talk about the mod revival scene, playing their own headline shows and with the likes of Secret Affair, Purple Hearts and the Lambrettas. We'll talk about some brilliant correspondence with John Weller, Paul's dad and manager of the jam, and how they managed to bag that incredible support slot at the tail end of 1981. Another cracking guest. Let's get into it. Bruno Gallone, thanks for joining me. No, absolute pleasure. I've been sort of a big fan of listening to it, so it's, uh, it's nice to be on the show. Now, Italian heritage, so should I be, I mean, I don't want to do an Italian accent, but when I do the introduction to this podcast properly, <laughs> should it be like, Galoni, Galoni? You can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> what would the grandparents say? That's always a good test. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, my parents, my parents met over here. Well, they're both, both Italian, but they're both, they met over here. Now, I'd imagine that some of this love of fashion and things doesn't just come from a, a love of mod. It comes from the Italian way of life. So we'll talk a bit yeah. about that. But let's talk music first of all. So I'm really looking forward to discovering your story as a fan of the jam, yeah. but also how you and your band reaction come to support them. Yeah. Oh, no, on, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a story, it's a mad really. journey. It's a, 
mad, uh, mad story, right? I think that's why people still find or see affection in their story, really, because when I decided to start the band, it was back in 1980. I couldn't play an instrument or anything. I, I was at a mod night at Invert on Trend and went upon the stage and just asked the DJ for a song. But while I was waiting for him, I just kind of looked down at this crowd and it's like three hundred odd people there. And I just have to say, do you know what? It'd be great to be in a band on the stage here. And he just says, well, why don't you get one together? I went, when's the next night? And he says, six weeks. And I just went, all right then. <laughs> and, and he went, what are you going to call yourselves? And I said, um, the internal envelopes, because I used to work for the gas board at the time. We used to use these internal envelopes. <laughs> and he announced it and they all went mad. And I just remember walking down the step thinking, oh, my God, you know, what have I just agreed to? I <laughs> never sung in public apart from Happy Birthday and couldn't play an instrument. And I just thought, blimey, I've, I've got to make this happen. I'm quite a cocky 18-year-old, really, at the time. That's kind of that attitude. And then I knew a guy that used to play the drums in a, an old punk band who was now mod, went up to Trevor, says, do you want to be in a band? <laughs> and he went, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, you know, I didn't say I've got a gig in six weeks, but I just, and, and I said, do you know anybody else that plays? And he says, oh, yeah, Kev, who used to be in the same band. And he's a kind of modish now. And then there was a guy that used to see with um, a guitar in his car at the gas board. And I thought, I'll ask him. So we, the, the, that, that was the four of us, really. And about a day, two days later, I went to the local music shop and I bought a secondhand bass guitar and a microphone and a second-hand amplifier. And we kind of got together, and within six weeks, we played on that stage. But the crazy thing about it, within a year of that day, just about, we then supported the jam. I mean, that is utterly bonkers. Quite it frankly. is. And it is, really. I mean, I'm looking forward to digging into this full story. When was your discovery of the jam? What was it What was it through? Well, I first saw them in 77. So um, it was in November. It was at Darby King's Hall. I'd heard somebody playing in the city at school on a, it was a sixth form common room or something and walked past and, and kind of just stood listening to this thing and something just, you know, spoke to you there and then really. I mean, I'd already gone to a little bit of the punky stuff as well. £1.50, I think it was, to go and see them that week. <laughs> Brilliant. And then just went to go and see them loads after. It was kind of, I was part of that crowd that used to go along to sound checks and, you know, get in, especially if it didn't have a ticket, you know, watch them do the sound checks, sometimes getting on the guest list of one of the one of them if they came down to have a chat. And that exploded. There used to be like eight or nine people. And then by the time we supported them, there was about three or 400 people in the Hammersmith Pally at the sound check. It's, I mean, it's always, I mean, you've heard me on the podcast say that I still yeah. can't get my head around that sound check thing. But the fact that it, even when it's growing, even when the band's getting bigger and they're having number one success and all that stuff, it's still a yeah. thing. It was part of it. So if I went to go see them at Leicester and they were playing twice there at the Montfort Hall with a ticket on one of the nights and then turn up for the sound check on the other and somehow get on Bruce Foxon's guest list. <laughs> Amazing, really. So, so I used to see him a lot. Although we were being, the friends we were with, we were being called punks at the time because we kind of dressed like the jam and we obviously listened to everything Paul Weller was saying about the mod scene and stuff. It, it did introduce you to the 60s type stuff and you like the kinks and those sort of things. Yeah, then suddenly you were being called mod before we called ourselves mod, I think. And obviously that Italian heritage already has you know has you know there's a love of fashion there's a love of smart clothes and the mod world is a very italian thing as well right it's not just british mod right no 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 and you know when i look at pictures of my dad when he was younger i mean he's quite a cool dude and some of the suits he used to wear it came from somewhere didn't it really then like you said it was all pretty cool to be italian as well and what was it about the band why did they connect with you 
you know what? I, I'd, I'd love to know because, you know, the, and I'm like with lots and lots of other fans, you know, you, something just connected. You'd be listening to those lyrics, you know, before you went out, I'd be listening to Here Comes the Weekend, uh, you know, from the modern world and get a new album and you'd, you'd learn the lyrics before you left the, the room, you know. I mean, it was a great time to be that age to be lucky enough to have those sort of bands, not just the jam. The week after they saw the jam that time, I saw the clash the week after that. I saw the buscock. So it was a great time to be that age, really. You know, sort of like 15, 16. It's amazing, really. But it could have quite easily have been the police or Dire Straits, right? Yeah, you could have yeah, gone down, yeah. gone down, not no disrespect, but no, you, could have, no. you could have gone down that route. Yeah, yeah. I think the jam, the lyrics just spoke to us, didn't they, really? I think it was, um, really did live and breathe some of those lyrics, you know, without being a sycophant thing. You know, it was kind of like, I remember when Tube Station came out and I just couldn't believe that I was into a band that could write something like down in the Tube Station. I just remember that pride of thinking, oh my God, you know, the, the lyrics were so powerful. And I thought, and that's the, my band, you know. And that song, What Are We Now, 45 Years Later, is still stands up as an incredible piece of work, doesn't it? It's still my single, yeah, if someone says list your favourite songs down in Tubestation, it's number one. It, it's, it's never dropped off, really, even though there's been loads of other songs and stuff, Tube Station just remains the best song, really. I guess there's also that connection with you and your schoolmates and yeah. you, your a community loving this band together. Yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, we did go, we did go on mass. And I remember going to the students' union and, and encouraging this guy to get a coach and, and get loads of people to go and see them. So, yeah, it was, I think, like 1978, going to Coventry Theatre and, and a load of people from Burnt on Trent going to see the jam then as well. It was a community. You would go with a bunch of mates. You didn't tend to go on your own. You know, it was as a group, you'd go and see the jam. And try and describe, put us in that mosh pit. Well, I don't know where you stood. You might have been terrified of the back. Like I'd probably would, would have been. But, but take us into that gig scenario. What would it yeah. be like? You, you went enough times to have yeah, yeah. good memories, right? Amazing memories, yeah. I tended to be in the middle. I didn't tend to be at the front. I know that loads of people used to run to the front. I don't know why I didn't do that, actually. It was kind of, I was a, kind of a respectful distance. So you're able to dance, you know, and everything. And the energy from the jam gigs are phenomenal, really. I feel sad for the people that didn't get to see them, but I would never take away from their love of the jam too. But they'll never get to experience that energy, the one we used to see them. And it was, you know, you really felt special when you came out as well. I don't think I ever saw or felt that with any other band. There's a thing where, I guess, looking at it now, there's some people who would call it like, you know, it was the Paul Weller show, it was Paul Weller's yeah. band kind of thing. But for you, it was all I like never thrill, felt that. Right? Yeah, no. I never felt that at all, no. And, and even when we did get to support them, it wasn't, it wasn't about Paul Weller, it was about the three of them. I think, you know, the jam with three people, and it was kind of, it was all about that. You either, you imagined you were either the Paul Weller, Bruce Fox, or, or, or Rick Buckler, really, if you're flattened about at home pretending you're a drum into something, or on a tennis racket pretending to be one of the jam, you know. <laughs> yeah, the point of which you form the band, the tennis racket is the only instrument you can play, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I could play it really well. <laughs> so they could play it better than the bass guitar. <laughs> Why the bass? Presumably because it's only got four strings, right? It is. Do you know, it was that. It, <laughs> I, I went into the music shop. I did. I was just going to buy a microphone and uh, I saw a guy just playing this guitar with, with his finger. I thought... Is that the bass guitar? Because, like, even though you go to watch bands, I think never been into a music shop up until then. And I thought, oh, that must be a lot easier. So I brought that together with a how to play the bass guitar 
book. <laughs> and I even used that on the first gig as well. It was opened up at a page. Oh, why not? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So the first gig was December 1980. Yeah, it was uh, 14th, 14th of December. Yeah, and there was three or four hundred people um, on this particular night, and we went for it big star really because i suppose when people start off with a band they've probably got a little pa and whatever but there was this local rock band who had this great big pa and whatever money we were getting we had the work so it's like big pa monitors and everything so obviously having seen the jam do sound checks to be suddenly up there doing the one two one two it was quite a moment just that really and were you so, giving off your best bruce fox moves yeah well i was too nervous to jump <laughs> in case the lead uh, fell out yeah yeah, yeah. but I, I had actually had the um the plectrums drilled with a little hole in them and there was a little a thing attached it was attached to my hand because i was so nervous that i didn't want to actually obviously let it go and i i, I became lead singer by default because i was the only one that because we only had this one amp and mine just had to be the loudest voice you know so um i think i was the one that was brave enough to be the singer really I used to write some poems. I still write poems. I've done it all the time. And um, I converted some of those into songs. But we did quite a few covers. We did a couple of jam numbers, a team beats number. We did, we did a few. I mean, we must have done 16 songs, and I bet you at least two-thirds were covers. But we did do some of our own, you know, which um, in that six-week period, <laughs> they were a bit rough. But, you know, they, you know, some of them survived some of the recordings that we did. That's brilliant, isn't it? But I think also where this next goes is, I mean, in such a short space of time, yeah, it's yeah. brilliant, really. It's a, and it's a yeah. wonderful story because it's only like a month after that first gig. So yeah. you're very early on, but you start then getting in touch with I did. I've got Don Weller, starting, yeah, starting writing to Dennis Monday, asking for a gig, right? Yeah, I've still got these letters. It does make me smile because obviously there's a lot of bravado there sort of saying what a great following we got and all this and I know that you give opportunities to people and whatever but John didn't reply and Dennis did Dennis Monday did he replied um, a couple of times saying I'll pass this to Paul and everything I didn't pester them but I certainly wrote you know three or four letters uh, sent tapes as well if we went into the studio I sent the tape and even sent some live stuff I mean it must have sounded awful really I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like for them to, if they did listen to them. But so from that, we then started playing obviously a lot of gigs. I was very focused about getting a scene, played quite a few gigs in London. And that was a big thing. You know, we were a little band from Burton on Trent. People know Burton on Trent for maybe the beer with Bass Beer and, you know, Double Diamond and that sort of thing. But as far as a musical town, there wasn't anybody that ever came from Burton that was, uh, that you could say, oh, yeah, you know, he came from there. I should ask you about the name, actually, because obviously the internal envelopes thing disappears. Yeah, reaction came from the jams all around the world, uh, single. So, I, you know, when I was trying to think of a name, I thought internal envelopes was just, was okay. The first poster say internal envelopes, but then I quickly changed. I thought it wasn't, um, it wasn't mod enough, really. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't a memorable name. And reaction just spoke to me. I thought, yeah, it was either impact or reaction. I chose reaction. So you're writing these letters. You're asking yeah. for the gig. You're getting in touch with Dennis at Polydor, this Monday yeah. Polydor Records. You're, I mean, and like we say, what you're an 18 year old kid at this point. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. So it's it took a lot. Did it take a lot of nerve? I suppose. It, I, 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 when I think back on it, I think, yeah, blinding the nerve of this lad. But I just, I was just very, very focused on wanting that end goal. I suppose of we could support. Jam, 
when I think about it now, it's like, you know, the nerve of the guy, really. But, and it's um, also that thing of you don't know. You don't know yeah, the industry. You don't know. I, mean, no, I remember, I remember no. sending my demo tapes, which were terrible as a radio presenter. I mean, they never got much better, but they were terrible as a, what would it be? And I'd have been like 15 sending tapes to Radio 1. And I couldn't understand yeah. why they weren't getting back in touch, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to host a breakfast show. Why are they, why aren't they yeah. coming back to me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was, it was a blind naivety, but. It was a nice naivety because I, I, there was no fear whatsoever. If the jam had said yes after we'd only been playing four weeks, I would have thought, yeah, let's go support the jam, not realising that we weren't musically good enough by then, really. The fact that you're getting your musical chops and you're playing loads. Yeah, yeah, I was writing a lot more as well. I was starting to write. So we were, the, the switch had become, we were certainly probably two thirds of my own stuff now rather than covers we'd still do the odd few covers you know because it was nice to do them but certainly became more our own songs you know quite quickly really i was writing quite a lot i became very focused and you know we lost members along the way you know when, when it became the very end there was you know our um guitarist left and replacing with another guitarist and a drummer left on the day i actually went to tell the band we've got the jam but that's that's a little bit later <laughs> so i was the only one that remained the same if you like so probably without me realizing it i was very very um it had to be that way really yeah, and you're very driven. And I was very, very driven, to be honest. And I was a salesperson as well, so I was really selling the band. You know, I was working for the gas board as a salesman, and it was a permanent thing of selling the band all the time, bigging yourself up in letters and, and, and you know, getting some good gigs. You know, we were supporting the Lambrettas, supporting various mod bands at the time as well. And we were getting quite well-known as well. Certainly down in London, we were getting a little bit, you know, a nice reputation down there. Now, let's talk about what happens next, which is yeah. a, a little while later where you ring up Polydor Records. I know. That itself took a lot of nerve because I, when I used to work at the gas board, there was the boss was, his name was Goddard and referred to as God as well. And there was in this office, there was only one phone that uh, dialed out. Otherwise, you have to go through the reception. And obviously, if I was phoning London, they'd want to know why I was phoning London because you only represented the Midlands area. So um, I waited for him to go out for his lunch. <laughs> I went into his office and it was like, a, it, it, when you look at things of the, you know, back in the 1780s, it was, it would have been quite a frightening thing. You know, the curtains were drawn and everything. And then I, I, I phoned Polydor Records and put on this terrible Mockney accent, <laughs> pretending I was John Weller's brother. I don't know if John Weller had a brother, but I was sort of saying that, you know, um, I'm coming to the wedding on Saturday, but I've lost the phone number. And they gave me John Weller's own phone number. Unbelievable, <laughs> really. <laughs> and I, I phoned and Paul Weller answered the phone and... And I said, can I speak to your dad? And he was like, dad, it's for you. And, and so when John Weller came on the phone, I pretended I was the manager of reaction. And I sort of said, you gave me your number at Leicester de Montfort Hall. And he must have thought, I must have given him a phone number because it's my home phone number. And I talked about our band getting together with your lads and all this, trying to sound like a real grown-up. I, I presume he was a bit shell-shocked. And it was like, give me a few weeks. I'll see what I can sort out. Put the phone down and heart thumping out my chest. And I come out of that. And then two or three weeks later, exactly the same scenario happens. Wait for the boss to go out. I then phone. And unbelievably, he says, yeah, I've got, I've got you a date. And he told me what the date was, and I put the phone down, and I thought, no one's going to believe me. So, <laughs> so I phoned him up again, and I said, oh, just so we got sort of stuff sorted for the diary, can you just put that, put that in writing for me, so, you know, so we don't double-cross, try to sound so silly, really, I'm just saying, so we don't, like, you know, book something over the top of that. Still not told the band by then. And three or four days later, I get this letter, jam-headed paper, telling us we've got a gear, uh, this band, what time we had sound check is and everything. 
So, yeah, just, I just remember holding this letter. It was like, and that's gone photocopy loads of times in case I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> He's using the boss's photocopy now. Oh, dear, I tell you. I'd love to photocopies. So, yeah, that was, that was weird to finally then to be able to then go and see the band. And like I said, when I didn't walked in, our um, drummer was waiting to say that he was not wanted to be in the band anymore. And this that was before a, he knew that you were going to be playing it, with the jazz. It was, a, it was a girlfriend thing. You know, like, um, you got this girl and uh, it was a bit like John and Yoko. She became a bit clingy and I uh, didn't like it at all in, in practice. I'd turn around and she'd be sitting next to him uh, on the drums and everything, you know, by the drums. So when I there saying, supporting the jam trev, and she was there going, don't believe him, he's full of this, that and the other. And, <laughs> and as he's walking out, I'm going, we really are supporting the jam. And so when I actually then went in the doors to tell the rest of the band, it was a bit sort of, um, you know, bittersweet really because Trev was the, the first person I, I got to join the band you know right. so I'm there telling them and sleep we didn't practice that night we just got very drunk and um I don't think anyone could quite believe it even though I had the letter because it's like we were just this little band from Burton I mean the jam were really big then as well you know they, they'd already had two number ones so yeah when it started to sink in they were actually going to be on the same stage this is not a smaller local gig to you no, this is no. this I'm is Hammersmith <laughs> <laughs> I know that's that's the most amazing thing about it it was a proper venue you know I mean a big place so um it was surreal I mean obviously we went straight to our local press they did this great article on us everything and obviously every gig we were doing as a build-up to that it was so easy to get the gig because we were going to be supporting the jam yeah yeah all i can think here is that you must have been a brilliant salesperson how long were you doing sales for i mean that must have been an incredible career well, i still am a salesman <laughs> yeah you see <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah yeah i do and i do think back and i do think that i just wonder even by the time we then supported them had john weller listened to what we did or was it all about i quite like this guy on the phone you know he's got a lot of balls yeah, possibly, right? Yes, that's, yeah, that's, but, yeah. but it's still like a, you know, still reputationally, I think you look at the acts they were putting on as supporters yeah. and stuff. They weren't, Absolutely. you know, that was important. This band are big at that time. Yeah, they are. And, and like I said, they were massive because when we supported them, they were announcing Town Call Malice was going to be the new single. And obviously that got, that went, that was their third straight to number one as well. So the gig itself happens, when is it? 15th of December, 1981. Yeah. Let's start the day. <laughs> so well, you wake up in the morning, well, take, well, take me there. Well, no, two days before, it nearly didn't happen for us because on the Sunday we had a gig in Colville and it was one of the worst winters for absolutely ages at Colville in Leicestershire. And the snow was absolutely horrendous. It really was bad. And it was a bit foolish of us to try our two mates who were, you know, our roadies were going with the equipment. Me and Dave, the other guitarist, were going in another car and the other guys were going in another car. It, it really was bad, so much so that after trying for 40 minutes, we turned round and then we got stuck on a snowdrift. We were out pushing it, trying to push the car. We totally drenched and really thought we were going to die, to be honest. It was like, it was that for the car packed in completely and we were just completely soaking wet, freezing cold. And then these lights appeared behind us. And it was a guy in a Range Rover, and we kind of got out before it as he was starting to back away. And this guy took us to his house, put us in the caravan at the back, and then later on we came back and got the car. And every each of the band and the two guys all had different stories of what happened that night, but we all got stranded. But I do remember there was a point when I really thought I was we were going to die, and I thought, I'm not going to support the jam. <laughs> that, that, that was kind of one of those weird things that you went through. That was the biggest thing you're yeah. thinking about, yeah. <laughs> so sort of we then got back and obviously on the day we then set off, this is the 
Tuesday then we went off in a hired van. We hired a van for two or three days because we had a gig after that as well. Yeah, yeah, we got there so early, obviously. You know, John told us to turn up at four o'clock, but we got there really, really early. And we caught, walked in with our equipment and the jam were already set up because they'd been there the night before, because this was two, there was two gigs. So they didn't really need to sound check, but they did the sound check, I think, because of the amount of fans that were there. So they did like two or three songs, which is brilliant just in itself. We're standing at the back. John had come up to us, asked us if we were okay. And we had this guy that was with us who we'd um, asked to be our manager. <laughs> The day. I was going to so, say, did you fake bring the manager? <laughs> yeah, we did have a pretend manager there. Yeah, um, and it was embarrassing because I had Paul Weller walked by and went, is that Paul Weller? So I got really embarrassed as so all. We then got our equipment up four o'clock. John asked us to put our gear over there and uh, there was some nods from the, the jam and everything before we spoke to them after later. But Banana Arm and obviously the Roots DC who were also on, they, they didn't do a sound check, so it was, they obviously did they played the day before. And yeah, it was great. So there we were about to play. And on the left-hand side, I remember seeing Paul Weller with Kenny and, and a couple of the other roaders. He was playing cards. Of course. John, John was watching with Bruce. And Rick was around, but I didn't see him at the time. And then when we kicked out, played this song. It was great because I kind of looked over at Paul Weller. He looked to his dad. And it was, it was, there was like this, um, there was this collective nod as if think, oh, they're not too bad. And that was probably one of the best moments. It was like watching them go, these are okay. Did that sound check and that was kind of amazing, really. But what was great, really great about the day, and this is why the memory always stays quite strong, is that um, normally the main band will do the sound check and they clear off mm-hmm. and they come back later on. But everybody stayed. It was like from that time onwards, for those three hours before we played three hours or so, everybody stayed. John showed us upstairs and there was our dressing room and little star on our, our door and said our name. There was like sandwiches and drinks or whatever. And then almost immediately, Banana Armour came in and wanted a, one of them was smoking and wanted a light. And then Rick opens the door and says, do you guys want to join us for some food? You know, obviously we've got some food there and we just went too right. And we all went over in there. We were for little moments during that whole period of chatting with people. So I remember talking to Terry Hall. He was there with the Fun Boy 3 because they did a couple of numbers with Banana Armour. The nice thing that Rick uh, came up to me and Mark, the drummer, who was our new drummer at the time, and he's got some photographs. He's got showing these photographs. What do you think, guys? I'm doing some photography. And we looked through and went, and we both went, oh, this one's the best one. And that picture became the front cover of Absolute Beginners single. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. It was taken when he was playing at Leicester. One of the photographs was also was Town Called Manus photo, but they kind of did a bit of a Photoshop thing on it. And then I remember being up, up the top and I was chatting with Paul Weller for quite a bit, really. We were just leaning over the balcony and everything. And uh, I do remember this funny moment. We are just chatting away about music and stuff. And then they opened the doors and started letting the people in. They had a DJ at that gig. So because Paul wanted an, an immersive experience, I think, for those four gigs. And we're still chatting, and he just looks at me and says, don't you think you should get ready? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm playing. <laughs> so I, I then cleared off uh, to the rest of the lads in the dressing room, and they were a little bit jealous because I've been you know, just chatting to sort of, obviously only on just chatting with Paul. We all got a chance to talk to him, but I was talking to him quite a bit, really. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I guess also he's what, very similar age to you, then. Yeah, he's only, what, three three years? Is it three or four years older than me? I think it's 65. I can't tell how old Paul is. Yeah, 65, I think, this year. Yeah, so I'm 61. So, yeah, so, yeah, close to his age, yeah. And the and I guess this is the best you've ever. I mean the the sound. I mean this is next level up in terms of the equipment, the sounds. Just the monitors was probably the biggest sound we'd ever had. But everything just sounded amazing. It did sound really, really incredible. We got a fright from Kenny at first because we, me and Dave, had Rickenbackers. Anyway, you can't have Rickenbackers. And we got oh, only, we only got one guitar, and he, he obviously winded us up. You know. <laughs> I mean, that crew, I mean, I met Kenny, you know, Kenny's been on the podcast. Yeah, of course, yeah. But John Weller is such an important part of this whole mix, but really makes you feel like, um, you know, you're, you're there for the right reasons. That, Honestly, yeah. he was great. And even even at the end when he, because we only got paid 40 quid, but he gave us 50 quid because he said, you were all right, guys, you know, get yourself some chips on the way home. I think there was a little bit of taking us under our wing, a bit, under his wing a bit, really, because we were, you know, just... 18 and 19 year olds, that's all we were quite young lads mm. and all massive jam fans. All of us were, so you can imagine the experience for us is just phenomenal, really. So, sound check done. Talk to me about the actual gig itself. What's in your yeah. memory of that? Yeah. So, Gary Crowley introduced us. So, he'd been another chat and he said he was going to introduce us and everything. That was great in itself because he was, he was, you know, on TV quite a lot at the time. And I, I just remember that feeling obviously there was a lot of people there sort of because normally um i spoke well no jam gigs that people tended to go there quite early and stay there you know i know that modern times you know people don't bother with the support acts but everybody got in you know so there was like loads of people so when we got on it was just a, a sea of never seen anything like it before a sea of people just from the word go it, it was just great you know there was a couple of funny moments in the gig where we used to do this little thing with our i call them roadies but they were just our best mates really but Dave would knock his, his microphone so Steve could be able to run on, readjust his microphone, do that, and then run off. <laughs> the sum's so, up. <laughs> I remember Dave knocking his microphone and we're thinking, Steve's not going on. What's going on? And then we saw him down in the audience, the mosh pit area, just really giving it some down. That was quite fun. And there was another bit where Dave, Paul Weller always, always has his um, plectrums on his microphone stand. And I don't know why we, I had his stand, because normally the, that would be put aside, but Dave took one of those plectrum said who wants Paul Weller's plectrum and then threw the in and everybody just like dived into this trying to get and then his hand came up phoenix like with a little plectrum and then I heard him say is anyone another you know but then, you then heard Kenny saying some fruity language say leave those plectrums alone <laughs> that's coming out of your 50 quid yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you remember how many songs you got to so I think I think we did seven seven oh, is a half an hour yeah so we kind of um, I suppose back in the day sort of our sound was kind of moddy, punky type sound, so a bit new wave. It were fast and furious songs, and then when it finished, I you know everybody kind of went off on on a pause. But I I stood back a little bit behind the monitors and I just looked back and just kind of wanted to just take that moment in really. 
I was quickly knocked out a bit by Kenny saying, no, if you're on course, you know. And I went, oh, no, no, I, I, know, I just want to take in this moment. And he went, you've had your effing moment. I get off the stage. So as I'm coming down the stairs, Steve and Gavi, roaders were coming back up saying, it's all right, we're going to get this off. And I went, no, I just, this is like... The, I just thought this is the best it's going to be. And they were going, no, a little Del Boy thing. It was going, no, no, next year it'll be you on the stage, you know, headlining. But there was just that weird feeling. I don't mean in a spiritual way, but it was just, just like a weird feeling to think that was the best it was ever going to be. Yeah. Well, that, and it's a remarkable story, I think. Yeah. I mean, that short space of time is incredible. Presumably you then went and saw the jazz. Yeah. So, so I went back up, put the equipment away and, kept, and we kind of stood on the balcony to watch, um, Bananarama first and, and the roots, the roots mentioned us, which was really nice. And then kind of went down to watch the jam. But what was lovely, obviously, as soon as they're finished, you're going back up into the, the, the area that they wouldn't normally be allowed to go in. So, you know, we, we chatted to them afterwards as well. It, it was just one of those moments. And this is why it's kind of lived with me for such a long time that it was so special. We even went down well. Do you know what I mean? When we played, you know, we actually went down and, um, nor, you know, I've seen support bands just getting no response whatsoever. But, you know, we actually went down well and there's a few reaction chance when we were on there as well which was um you know obviously amazing really. i mean and that all makes it so strange in a way that what five months later reactions yeah. over i know i know yeah for that we support we, we've got to support a few more people secret affair and and purple hearts but it's that old cliche you know about musical indifferences we used to do uh wipeout it was quite a signature thing for us as um, a song. And Magnet Records had been at the show and they'd offered us a single deal to do Wipeout and then one of our own on the back. I was all for it and so was Dave, our guitarist. But the other two, they're, no, no, we just want to do our own stuff. And I think they wanted to go haircut 100, whereas I wanted to be more teardrop explodes. And so, so with Dave, really. So I think if it had been four or five years, four or five months later, we would have let them, let them go and, and keep reaction going. But I think it was, I think we just kind of were on our course, really. There was also, you talked about other bands you supported. Yeah. Am I right in thinking you supported the questions and the Dolly yeah. mixtures? Yeah. There was a, a promoter, well known ish promoter in the mod scene called Daryl Hayden back then. He put us on, he gave us our first few uh, London gigs as well. And he was organizing a big um, gig at the London Rainbow, which that I mean that was an iconic venue that's on its own, really. I think the Purple Hearts were supposed to headline it, but it ended up being the Lambrettas, Dolly Mixtures, Question. We've shared the dressing room with the questions. Hidden Charms, Long Tall Shorty. There was a, there was a few good acts and a band called The Mods as well. And it was a, you know, mod order and on the London Rainbow stage. I just nice. I crawled on the stage because I thought, oh my god! Like the the who had been on there? I think a few weeks before, the Rolling Stones had played there. Obviously, the Jam had played there. So that that was weird playing on that stage. It was massive. Never playing on a stage like that before. I just remember going to the you know in between a, a singing bit, going to the drums with my bass, then looking round and thinking, I've got to sing. The microphone's like way over there, and just. Do, doing a bit of a Bruce Fox and then jumping all the way over to the microphone. <laughs> Those bands get signed by Respond, um, yeah, yeah. Paul Weller's record label, a little later then. I don't think we were good enough to have got signed. By well, you've, you've said that. I mean, I think that's yeah. my experience in terms of that Radio 1 gig as well, right? Yeah, they yeah. come knocking. Yeah. Yeah. It, was a, you know, it was a realisation that I wasn't Chris Evans. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of what comes next, you do you start up another band. but it's... I do, yeah, yeah. We, there was a band was with Dave, who was the original guitarist, and um, a different drummer, but we came a bit music. Musically, we were better because we were a three-piece. So I had to really hone my craft as a bass player. 
Uh, we certainly wrote better songs, but we weren't a mod band. There was no, it, it wasn't the same sort of um, bandwagon. It was more difficult. We got, you know, we played some great places. You know, Dingwalls down in London was a great place to play. And we got, uh, yeah, did a few college gigs as well. But it just wasn't, it, it wasn't the same. And this was called Second Phase. Second Phase. Second Phase, okay. So, yeah. And then and that so was that- the time when I re-met Paul Weller, by the way. I don't know if, so this, so this yeah. is this is I mean this is something that's really lovely. So what a yeah. year later you bumped yeah, into yeah. Well. So there was a friend of mine who really talented guy who'd written two or three songs and he, he plays everything on it. He plays the drums, the saxophone, the guitar, bass, and everything. Really talented guy. I think he got a, a lady singing it, and he wanted me to help him. You know, see if people would be interested. So I, from the um, experience and some of the contacts I had, I, you know, went to Virgin uh, Records, went to um, Rough, Rough Trade. And we just happened to be walking near Polydor. There used to be this cafe. As we walked past it, I thought, it's Paul Weller. And I just quickly went back in and I was just about to sort of say, oh, man. And he put his hand out straight away. He went, it's Bruno reaction. And so obviously the guy I was with blew away completely. <laughs> um, and I gave him this tape and I said, will you ever listen to this, you know, from Pete, whatever. And he wrote to me, Paul Weller wrote to me and I wrote back and then he wrote again and I wrote back. And so we had, you know, I've got two or three handwritten letters from Paul, Paul Weller. It was just, just before he started the Star Cancer. So although I can't remember, he was sitting with somebody else and it could have been Mick Tolbert. I, I don't know. I can't remember because I was kind of like a bit focused on Paul Weller and just impressing the hell out of my mates at the time. And as a fan of, Paul's music. I mean, we should talk about the jam split, but yeah. were you a fan of the Style Council? I think at the time, and, and I'll be perfectly honest, I, I, I'd listened to it, but I wasn't, I learned to appreciate the Style Council afterwards. I think I was still an angry young man. And at the time, the Style Council were a bit more radio too for me. And I, I don't mean that to insult anybody that loves Style Council because I did become a Style Council fan later. But I think at the beginning, it was, um, I still wanted the jam. I still wanted to be the jam fan. I guess that split was such a shock as well, right? Yeah, it was, because I don't think anybody saw that coming, I don't think. Some people probably in a, in a circle would have seen it, but it was it, it was a bit of a shock to say, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. I remember the interview, was it, was it Nationwide or something, this interview? You know, it was like the talk of all our friends and everything. They thought, surely it'll change his mind. But, you know, Paul Weller, they was like, was so determined that he wanted to move on. So yeah, it was um, it was sad time. Not take that type of screaming and crying like those fans, but I think there was a lot of shell shock jam fans. What's also really interesting is the fact that he calls it quits, but he doesn't walk away immediately. There's no, still right. a tour to do. Yeah, yeah, and records, did, yeah. still singles, top of the pops, all that. Yeah, stuff. well, yeah, there was Beatrice Tolbert in there, and there's Beats Surrender. There was a few songs that came from it, and performances. And remember the you know the last performance on the tube. Watching that as well, yeah, it was it was weird at the time. Only when you think back on it, you think it was absolutely the right thing to do, you know. And and the reason why lots and lots of you would never want them to ever have reformed because that was then really that was all about that moment. And I know he's explained that a few times in interviews that it was yeah. all about the moment, really. Yeah, and somebody was talking to me about that the other day, whereby the fact that, because I, I can't remember who I was talking to on a podcast recently, we were saying like they must have had big offers to reform. Oh, yeah. And even in the last 10 years, they had big, like huge million pounds of offers yeah. to reform for like Nebworth and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm kind of glad they didn't. You know, maybe that's just because, um, you know, I got to see him so many times. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like uh, that was a moment in time. It, it fitted the age I was as well, and everything. I, I think it's. I think it was right not to. 
Yeah, and it would never be the same. It would never recapture that that those memories <laughs> of you but when it, you were a kid, right? But it would only ever be for money now, wouldn't it, really? It wouldn't be for musical reasons. It would be for shapers, that's all. Now, you took quite a long break from music. I did, yeah. God, 20 years, I think. Nobody wanted it like I did, I think. And I think that's the reason why I thought this is just not for me anymore and sold everything. I sold my guitars and everything and got rid of it and got married and had two lovely children. And it was about 20 years later, my wife bought me a guitar, an acoustic guitar and says, you know, and I then started playing again. So I'm weirdly the first thing I did, I ended up on telly. <laughs> <laughs> was, she, was she like, can you please stop ruining all these tennis rackets? <laughs> I'm going to get you another guitar for Christ's sake. <laughs> what was the telly thing then? Well, I ended up writing a football song. So I did a song. It was for, I had, had this song. My sister asked me to write um, a song for her um, husband's 50th. And um, so I wrote a song called Forever 18. And it just sounded like a football song. It just, I, I remember saying it to my wife. We said it the other day, actually. There were, um, and that was the time when there were England football songs. And just, you know, there's a World Cup coming up. So I changed the lyrics to Forever England. Uh, recorded it, just me and a guitar and, and a studio, and then started sending it out to people like Peter Kay and um, Kasabian and all this. And I got a call on Sunday night, and it was from BBC Five Live, and they said, oh, we're going to play your song tomorrow. I went, who's recording my song? And they said, no, no, it's just you and a guitar. I said, oh, they want that on the radio. <laughs> and uh, so, so they actually played it on the next day on Victoria Darkshire's show. And from that, suddenly BBC Midlands Today, I was on doing on there and Central TV, uh, I performed on there as well. So that was weird, yeah. So suddenly from doing nothing to doing something and then getting on TV. <laughs> That's mad, isn't it? And this is you as a solo artist. Yeah, yeah. So then I, then I started playing. I started doing loads of gigs and supported loads of people. I supported From the Jam, fun enough, three times. Dr. Feelgood, Toya, The Christians. So all this salesman thing was coming back out again. Roy Wood supported loads of people. So I did loads of it for a good 12 years. And suddenly, well, that buzz, that love of it's back again? Yeah, well, I, I stopped again. You know, so I did stop again about four or five years ago, or maybe six years ago. And the reason I started, really, was that it's COVID. It was COVID when people were asking about reaction on Facebook and um, asking if I've got memorabilia and would the band get back together. Well, Andy, the bass, you know, guitarist, lives in Fiji. That was never going to happen. And, and we split up. We did actually split up, you know. But I... I wrote a song and I just got in touch and I said, do you guys want to do something? They all did their little bits and it came back really bad. And so I wrote another one <laughs> and, and it came back a bit more like a perfect jigsaw puzzle. It all fitted in. And then I reworked the other one and we released these two songs on Spotify. And from that, there was a bit of a snowball, really. There was um, Adam Cooper from Heavy Soul Records got in touch with me and says, why don't we do an EP? You know, would the guys be interested? So we recorded another two songs, all by remotely. But then that came as an idea of an, of an album. So we ended up getting six songs from back in 1981, and six brand new songs. And it got released as a vinyl album. And um, that was quite amazing to get that. You know, so the reaction story got a little bit of a push. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and it goes full circle. In, yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? So, yeah, I'm, I am playing live again, but not very much. The band won't ever get back together, but it, it was a nice way to round it off, I think, really. Yeah. And that return to music was 
Presumably, so by this point, presumably you've learned the six strings of the guitar then, thinking about it, right? Yeah, 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 I learned the six strings. I I did learn it, um, you know, during sort of the second phase time, really. So I'd I'd started to write, because it was difficult writing songs on a bass guitar. So I think I became a better songwriter and enjoy it more and sort of pick up the guitar and play. I, I tend to write a lot, really. I don't record everything, but I certainly write a lot still. And the interesting thing about the music is that it's starting to pick up traction. You mentioned Spotify and all that, but yeah, yeah. then we're, you know, we're on compilation. Yeah, absolutely. And stuff like yeah. that, right? Well, I think that, that was the thing with, you know, heavy, heavy soul records and also with detour records about putting some songs of reaction on. And it, it's great, really, because we weren't part of that. It was such a short period of time when reaction was around. You know, we went on those compilations with Secret Affair and all those sort of things. But so it's nice to get a second wind over it, really. And nice that you've gained the reaction that you're getting. As yeah, well. absolutely. Because yeah, you yeah. could be putting stuff out into the void, right? Like so many people yeah. create music these days. Most definitely. I mean, I was amazed when, when the album came out. I think there was like 60,000 downloads on Spotify in such a short period of time. But it's from all over the world. It's not just the UK. You know, it's just, I think we've got, seems to be a big following from Australia. <laughs> don't know where that's come from, but Australia and the States. Uh, certainly been played on quite a few radio stations in the States which is um, amazing. In terms of Paul Weller, um, yeah. so the Style Council wasn't your thing at the time, but is now. Yeah. No, I what, got into what, it. Yeah, I did get into it. And his, new, his solo stuff I've been into for a long time. So, you know, I've got most of the um, CDs at the time, but they're obviously who buy CDs now. So um, there's always always like his new stuff, you know. He's, I, I love the way he's grown as an artist, really. Just I, I, I can't believe somebody can produce such a high level of stuff you know, over a long period of time, really. Every time he comes out with something else, it's like, I know when you hear interviews with him and he talks about it, it's being his job. But because he loves doing it, that's what he does. You know, he, the level of work is phenomenal, really. There are very few artists with that productivity, but also yeah. that, that level of quality as well, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. I remember listening to Antifa Pajorian when he did, when COVID was happening and he was in his studio, you know, at sort of like early hours of the morning just writing new stuff, you know, and it's really good stuff because, you know, when you think about when you do a, a load of songs, especially in, in a, you know, for a record, for for every 12 you've you produce on the album, you've probably written 30 and recorded 30, you know. So but the level of work has just been phenomenal. Hey, look, this has been so great to hear yes. your story, your journey, Bruno. I do have two questions for you before you Yeah, go. of course, yeah. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It could be The Jam, The Star Council, or Solo. I, I feel like I might know what's coming. Yeah, you know what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it will be down in Super Session. I just, I perform, I play it as well, actually. Okay, on, really? On acoustic, it's quite, it's obviously a different feel, but I think almost it gives it a bit more, more of um, a menacing um, sort of emotional thing on acoustic guitar. There are two songs, because I ask that question on every episode of the podcast, yeah. right? And there are two songs that are quite a bit ahead of every other song in yeah. the selection, but they are neck and neck, right? Yeah. One of them is Tube Station. Yeah. Okay? That comes up an awful lot. In fact, it came up on Ian Stone the other week. What would you think the other one would be? It, it wouldn't be a jam. It probably, for me, it'd be Changing Man. Yeah. Similar period, it's Wildwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that remarkable how, you know, you think of the time and space just between those two songs alone? Yeah, I know. Massive, really. I still can't believe it, Paul Weller. His age wrote Tube Station because, I mean, he was, you know, he must have been in, what, 20 when he wrote it. It's amazing, really. Yeah, still listen to all his stuff. You know, it's, you know, always anticipating what he's going to be doing next and he suddenly surprises you with something else. And obviously that the recent one with the orchestral thing was absolutely amazing. 
So, yeah, he, he continues to be the artist that, you know, you kind of hoped he would be, really. All right, final question. So, the purpose yeah. of this podcast is yeah. to meet some lovely people like yourself, hear your stories, but it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. Yeah. You know, it's my one big regret. Fingers crossed it'll happen. It's the reason I created the podcast. So, Bruno, if it happens, what should I ask him? I mean, it's difficult. So I, I don't think you should ask him something about the jam because I think he gets asked that so many times. I think it's what drives him, really, what makes him continually there to be able to create new stuff. You've got to be inspired all the time. And I know there'll be periods of time when he's not so inspired to write a lot of stuff, but he must get things all the time. It's kind of, there must have been, must be a point when he goes, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't think he does. I think there must be an inspiration with him. Maybe it's his family now, but, you know, there's, there's something that inspires him. I wonder what is what is it that drives him? Because yeah, it's quite easy, that knock of the Star Council album, that final album not being released, that yeah. kind of period without a deal, that could have been it, couldn't it? Well, yeah, and also the beginning of, you know, when he, when he was first doing his solo stuff, he was going back to small places again because he just wasn't getting, you know, the audiences and he certainly wasn't getting the radio play. Uh, so when it was, the, you know, the Paul Weller movement at the beginning, it, it, it was almost going back to basics again, really. So, I mean, there was an absolute long period of time before it, it really started finding his feet. Or people started to listen, I think. I think that's what it was. People started to listen again. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. We'll put all the details in the show notes for the new songs and the, uh, yeah. the story and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. um, we'll, we'll take some of the pictures of John Weller's letters and all that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good luck if you're in your quest, if you want me to phone <laughs> get a phone number. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I'll have to ring up Polydor and pretend that I'm some yeah. kind of relative. Do they still exist? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's back with Polydor. Is he? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Bruno, thank you, man. Really appreciate it. No, yeah, you take care. All the very best. Cheers, Dan. My thanks once again to Bruno Galone talking reaction on the podcast. If you want to find photos, links to the music that we talked about, including that new album, then check out my website, the show notes for this episode. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. And thanks again to Bruno for being a fabulous guest. Now, whilst you're there on my website, you can check out my official merchandise in the store and even get yourself a virtual coffee as well. Thanks for your support, Martin Bonhomme, who's done that in the past week. Hello to Mike C. Hi, Simon Carslidge. Thanks to you for your continued support. Hello, Martin Glover. Thank you, sir. Hello to Grant, who bought us a coffee. Alex McLaughlin, who says, playing catch up on the podcast after a couple of weeks holiday downtime. Hope you had a good time, Alex. He said, I had a chuckle at how much Billy Sullivan sounds like Weller when he talks. Big talent that I need to check out more. Absolutely. Martin Morrow, thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Brian G. Thanks for your support, sir. And to Mike Steer, thanks for getting in touch and cheers for your virtual coffee. If you want to get involved, just go online, head to my store. Really do appreciate your support. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. If you want to get in touch on social media, on X, at Weller Fan Pod, or you can search for us on threads, on Facebook, on Instagram. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. And don't forget, spread the word to your Weller loving friends, whether it's the Jam, the Star Council, Paul Weller Solo, or all three, or a combination of whatever, that this thing exists. It all helps to spread the word. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, in fact, anywhere that you can get your podcasts, you will find us. So spread the word, tell your friends that we're here. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.